The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Are there many deserts on your world? Quite a few, but none as big as this one. From orbit, you'd think the entire planet's nothing but sand. Ah, uh, well, we have a handful of lakes and small seas. What about the Earth? Two-thirds water. Extraordinary. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, September 4th, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. And welcome today to the show here at the University of Western Ontario, where this ghost town has turned into a bustling metropolis in a split second. I'm telling you, outside the UCC right now, it looks like the Midway, which doesn't open up till tomorrow, in fact, here in the City of London. But welcome to the show, 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to join in on the conversation today or have any comments on our subjects, which will be, if I can get to them all, because boy, am I overloaded today. You all know that uh, there's a coming sale of the London Hydro, or at least talk of a sale, might not happen, and uh, they were looking for input and you know they're going to tell you you own a piece of the action what's it worth well i'm going to tell you it's worth two cents and i'll explain why that is so also going to talk about an interesting thought that came to me while i was doing all this other stuff on on the whole green issue and it struck me that you know convenience isn't a matter of convenience it's a necessity and i'm going to give you my arguments on why i believe that now i I don't think it's you can talk convenience anymore and have you heard the latest on green apparently recycling is no longer to be considered a green activity, and that's from the green movement themselves. We'll talk about that. But first, with, uh, you know, we've got a federal election coming up, apparently. We've got three of the four major parties going green this election, at least openly so. And it doesn't look like it's the popular issue for poor Mr. Dion. But I think it, take, it, it bears Take you know stepping back and taking a look at the whole green issue, I think it's almost run its course, and I want to explain what I mean by that. But first, I want to um, create an overview. I've got my own theory now of why I think the Earth is warming, and mankind's activities on this Earth are not part of my theory because there's nothing about human activity that fits into what we already know about global warming. I don't know how much of this I'll get through today, but hopefully I can paint a picture for you here. And uh, before I give you my version of what I think is going on, let's step back, take a big breath, and look at the big perspective. We are, after all, uh, speaking about the globe and not just our own locale. You, you know, you always hear that, think globally, act locally. But how we should act locally, I think, depends a lot on what we think about globally. It happened, I was looking through my my library of books that I just have on my shelf that's been sitting there for years. And sure enough, one of them, which I often use to, you know, sit down with my grandson and we go through it and I teach him stuff about the history of the world. And it's actually an old Life magazine reprint and hardbound. And it's called The World We Live In. Published way back, and this is significant, in 1955. 
So it still has color pictures and all those beautiful things that, you know, you can fold out and see the whole stretch of, uh, you know, the geological scales and all kinds of wonderful pictures. Even, even look at the planets and stuff. But it's interesting what was written in that magazine at the time about the history of the climate of the planet that we live on called Earth. And I think it's very important to be aware of this because it certainly places what we think is a crisis today into its proper context. And that's why I'm doing this because it's just half of the picture today. You're going to be hearing from someone else uh, who had an article in the Post just a week or so ago uh, who's, quote, recanted on the whole CO2 theory, and he's one of the major proponents of that theory. Now, this is out of Life magazine, 1955, and uh, it wasn't written by any particular person. It was like almost like an encyclopedia. All the contributors are listed at the front and back of the book. And here's what they say. In the grand perspective of Earth history, the aberrations of climate down the centuries appear as eccentric as the day-to-day -day vagaries of the weather. One cannot assume that Brazil has always been as hot as it is today, or that the Sahara always is dry, or that the temperature mean of England is the same now as it was in the reign of Alfred. At the present time, 1955, remember, the Earth's overall climate is far more rigorous and distinguished by greater extremes of heat and cold than it has been throughout most of the last one and a half billion years of geological time. For most of its existence, the climate of Earth has been comparatively uniform and genial, and temperature differences relatively small. Its polar regions were ice-free, understand that, fairly temperate and fertile. Animals ranged more widely and plants spread over areas that are barren today. Oceans covered great areas of the present continental masses and warm currents flowed to the poles through broad channels. Important thing to keep in mind too because water, which was our theme over the past two weeks, is a key to all of this I think too. Now this benign state of affairs, writes Life magazine, which prevailed for the greater span of terrestrial time, is the normal climate of our planet. That's the normal climate. No ice on the poles, warm all over the place, animals everywhere, life just all over the place. And intervening interludes of severe but brief climatic change are considered by geologists and climatologists as abnormal, and they represent less than one-fifth of geologic history. The last such period began about a million years ago and reached the most recent peak some 10,000 years ago, which is like yesterday on the, on the geologic scale, when the great ice sheet started to recede from a line passing near the present location of Syracuse, Milwaukee, Des Moines, and uh, that whole area in the states there. Climatologists disagree as to whether we're living today in the final stages of an ice age or merely in the temporary cycle of recession within the greater glacial epoch. In any case, the entire history of man has been enacted in, quote, un and end quote, abnormal times. He has never known the normal climate of his planetary abode. Even within historical times, cyclical changes in climate have been recorded and often profoundly influenced the course of history. We talked a lot about that on the show. We had John Thompson on uh, speaking to that very issue in quite detail on an earlier show. Recurring intervals of wet and dry climate produce fluctuations in desert and forest growth, which before the advent of the road-building Romans affected the distribution of human society. It has been observed that eras of discovery, invasion, and conquest in northern latitudes have often coincided with periods of glacial recession and warm climate. 
At the time of the Norman Conquest, England was a grape-growing country. Greenland was settled in 986, provided pasturage for cattle and sheep. But in the next three centuries, reference to vineyards in England vanished from the literature, and the graves of colonists in Greenland became ever shallower as the ground froze more. During the 15th and 16th centuries, most vigorous of all epochs in exploration and commercial expansion, the glaciers retreated once again. They advanced anew in the 1600s and continued to push southward in some areas until 1850. Very recent period. A period during which some villages in the Swiss Alps were obliterated by the encroaching ice. Some authorities believe that high civilization and a certain type of climate go hand in hand. The optimum climate for human activity appears to be characterized by moderate temperatures and frequent barometric depressions, providing both adequate rainfall and the stimulation of changeable weather. You know, it's one, of, it's one of the things I like about Canada. The seasons come to you. You don't have to travel anywhere to get to the seasons. If you live in London, Ontario, you probably uh, experience every extreme this planet almost has to offer. At least it can be so. Now, it was in such climatic circumstances that the great civilizations of Greece and Rome evolved. Their eventual decline and the shifting of civilization to the north may have been the result of a northward shift of the circumpolar rain belt and the consequent desiccation of the Mediterranean area. Now here it comes, even in 1955, Life magazine, okay? The variable climate productive of high civilizations of the past is found today among other places in Great Britain, France, Germany, the Scandinavian countries, Japan, parts of the Soviet Union, and parts of the U.S. and Canada. Yet for the past century, temperatures have shown an upward trend. This has been partly, particularly true in the last four decades, during which glaciers have been in retreat all around the world. The reason for this gradual warming of the Earth cannot be defined with certainty. One suggested explanation is an increase in the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere, along with the water vapor and ozone, water vapor, of course, being the number one supposed um, uh, you know, uh, greenhouse gas, uh, carbon dioxide helps to trap the Earth's heat within the greenhouse of the atmosphere and prevents it from radi radiating away into space. In the last half century, the carbon dioxide ratio, and they, I'm not sure what they mean to what, because certainly not to the total atmosphere, because that's always 98% nitrogen and, and oxygen. Eh? Every other gas, other than those two, is in the remaining 2% of the atmosphere's volume. So, uh, you know, when they say it's, it's increased, it's within that so it's increased in there by 10%, <laughs> a phenomenon which some contribute or attribute rather to expanding industry, very important. End quote. Now at this point, strangely enough, the article goes on to speculate on how mankind might survive without any atmosphere at all, uh, i.e. in outer space. Of course, it was written 14 years before man landed on the moon and only two years before Sputnik was launched in 1957, and they really saw the problem of the air and atmosphere almost to be a greater one than overcoming gravity. Now, of course, today, and some of you may want to dispute me on this, we know that carbon dioxide is not the cause of climate change, and we know that CO2 does not precede but follows increases in temperature. This is not only common sense, but has been confirmed by all the data which we shall review momentarily. CO2 is a byproduct of heat and combustion. 
And so in the same way that the CO2 coming out of your exhaust pipe doesn't create the heat in your car engine, but is a result of that heat, so too the carbon dioxide increases seen in nature is preceded by periods of global warming. Now, David Evans is described as a former consultant to the Australian Greenhouse Office from 1999 to 2005. You know, uh, Greenland just went, uh, or Greenland, uh, Australia just went green. Maybe that's what it should be called now, Greenland. Eh? And um, he referred to himself, and this is kind of funny, quote, as the rocket scientist who wrote the carbon accounting model. Uh, that measures Australia's compliance with the Kyoto Protocol. And I thought that was kind of cute, calling himself a rocket scientist and being a little facetious about it. In an August 30th editorial appearing in the National Post titled, Why I Recanted, Evans points out how there has never been proof that CO2 contributes significantly to global warming, only a theory. That's all they ever had. And under the so-called, uh, you know, better safe than sorry approach to government, which seems to be predominant these days, governments poured millions and millions and millions of dollars into this theory. And, you know, it strikes me that the carbon tax is just really a way to fund the carbon theory, that with a federal election on the horizon, we'll surely be talking about that one in the near future. But this is what David Evans had to say, and I quote here, we scientists had political support, the ear of government, big budgets, and it was great. We were working to save the planet. But since 1999, new evidence has seriously weakened the case that carbon emissions are the cause of global warming. And by 2007, the evidence was pretty conclusive that carbon played only a minor role and was not the main cause of the recent global warming. As Lord Keynes famously said, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? <laughs> there has not been a public debate about the causes of global warming, and most of the public and our decision makers are not aware of the most basic salient facts. And here they are, according to David Evans. Number one, the greenhouse signature is missing. We've been looking and measuring for years, and they cannot find it. In other words, they can't find those results and that reaction that they kept telling you about the greenhouse uh, process. Number two, there is no evidence to support the idea that carbon emissions cause significant global warming. None. There's plenty of evidence that global warming has occurred, but there are no observations by anyone that implicate carbon as a significant cause of the recent global warming. Three, the satellites that measure the world's temperature all say that the warming trend ended in 2001. Four, the new ice cores show that in the past six global warmings over the past half a million years, the temperature rises occurred on average 800 years before the accompanying rise in atmospheric carbon, which says something about cause and effect. None of these points are controversial, says Evans. The last point was known in the last dispute uh, uh, by 19, or sorry, 2003. Yet Al Gore made his movie in 2005 and presented the ice cores as the sole reason for believing the carbon emissions cause global warming. In any other political context, our cynical and experienced press corps would surely have called this dishonest and widely questioned the, polit the politician's assertion. Until now, the global warming debate has merely been an academic matter of little interest. Now that it matters, we should debate the causes of global warming. The world has spent $50 billion, wow, I, I said millions, it's $50 billion, on global warming since 1990, and we have not found any actual evidence that carbon emissions cause global warming. What's going to happen over the next decade as global temperatures continue not to rise? 
The Australian Labour government is about to deliberately wreck the economy in order to reduce carbon emissions. If the reasons later turn out to be bogus, the electorate's not going to re-elect a Labour government for quite some time. When it comes to light that the carbon scare was known to be bogus in 2008, the Australian Labour Party is going to be regarded as criminally negligent or ideologically stupid for not having seen through it. And if the Liberals support the general thrust of their actions, they will be seen likewise. The onus should be on those who want to change things to provide evidence for why the changes are necessary. The Australian public is eventually going to have to be told the evidence anyway, so it might as well be told before wrecking the economy, end quote. Good advice, but, you know, totally in contradiction to current government policies and ideologies we have here. You know, they're all on the bandwagon of uh, better safe than sorry, let's ban it. So here's my personal working theory on what's causing global warming. I openly speculated on this on a previous show, possibly over a year ago, and I'm now fairly convinced that the cause of global warming is not human activity in any way or in such a minor way as to be negligible. My theory, I think, takes into account all the evidence I've been looking at and even the, even the evidence that's contradictory. In fact, it was that contradiction that caused me to speculate about this on a previous show, and uh, which has now led me to conclusions that I think are kind of unavoidable. And unless we hear something really extraordinarily dramatic and new, uh, some kind of development we don't know about yet, on, or observation about our climate, I think this is pretty much it. Now, if you've been reading the papers on global warming lately, you may have noticed quite contradictory claims that A, the Earth is warming, and B, the Earth is cooling. You'll hear that A, the glaciers are retreating, and you'll hear that B, the ice on Greenland has increased in thickness by about 60 feet over the past few decades. We played a clip about that on a past show. Now, I think the first thing to realize is that both phenomenon are occurring. I don't think it's a contradiction. I think it it's perfectly makes sense. The ice caps are receding, particularly at the edges, and increasing at the same time, more on the land interiors, although there's some recession there too. In, in all the discussion of global warming, uh, you know, it's been assumed that the phenomenon is strictly an atmospheric one, and that the whole CO2 greenhouse theory nonsense is an, at, is an atmospheric theory. But I've come to believe that you know, even though the atmosphere itself may get warmer from time to time in our weather and climate history, what's going on in the atmosphere temperature-wise has a lot more to do with the fact that planet Earth is a water planet. If, we're, you know, if Earth actually was 100% Earth, okay, like no water, then our atmosphere would be fried and frozen on a daily basis. We'd become Mars in no time flat. In fact, a better example sitting right in front of us every night, just look up at the sky, it's called the moon. Okay, that's, there's, a, there's a thing that should be called the Earth. So now you'll understand why we've been talking about water so much, to understand its properties. And one of its most significant properties is that water retains heat. And with the surface of our planet being 71% water, the significance of this hits you like a ton of bricks. Uh, you know, we already know that the three major factors affecting the climate of our planet are, one, the sun, two, the oceans, and three, plant life and vegetation, including, remember, all that th which, which exists under the oceans, in the oceans. And we know that the Earth, uh, be being much warmer with no ice caps, is the normal climate of our planet. We're living in an abnormally cool period. But nevertheless, you know, the sun drives everything. Uh, the other planets in our solar system, which have observable polar ice caps, have all been observed to be receding at the same time as ours. <laughs> Sounds like a pretty good piece of evidence to me. Uh, 
And on Earth, the sun heats the oceans, and over time the oceans retain that heat. And our empirical historical data on the world's worldwide temperature fluctuations of our oceans is very inadequate. Uh, the oceans can also be superheated when under ocean volcanoes erupt, uh, currents might change direction, and a host of other phenomena that we don't fully understand. You know, one of those we know, we call it El Nino. Now, because air heats and cools far more rapidly than water, it's not a contradiction to hear that the atmospheric temperature has been dropping since 1999, while at the same time the warmer water continues to melt glaciers at the edges where the two come into contact in particular. And remember still that while some parts of the Earth are quite warmer, particularly in the north, other areas have experienced much colder weather. So very generally speaking, with regard to global warming, I think the planet is just moving in the direction of its normal state, and, and our reacting to global climate change with total anxiety and panic is quite akin to early man reacting to the weather changes that so mystified him until they were better understood. You know, in early primitive societies, they performed rain dances and chant chanted to their gods. You know, in modern society, our primitives ban stuff and, and, and penance to the god of Mother Earth. So it's the same thing until we learn what is actually causing it. Because carbon dioxide is a byproduct of combustion, warmer periods in the Earth's history quite understandably generated more CO2, simply because there was more life on the planet. Vegetation and other life forms undergo a form of combustion both during and after death. If you look at life in a physics sense, not biological or chemical, even those, those processes are there. Uh, vegetation and other life forms undergo a form of combustion, and we all exhale CO2 and, uh, because of the combustion process in our bodies. Food is the fuel. Your stomach is the furnace, speaking in physics terms, which burns your food slowly, chemically through a process we call digestion. After death, vegetation rots and flesh decomposes, both being, if you look at them again in a phys physics point of view, slow chemical processes of burning. And this applies to all the life in the ocean as well as on land. And, uh, you know, this is to say nothing of the Earth's own geological heat genera generating processes that it can do. But carbon dioxide as a cause of global warming I personally don't think so. I'm going to take a quick break here. Now you're going to be hearing from David Suzuki, who obviously disagrees, but listen to his observations coming up. When we come back, we'll talk about why recycling isn't green anymore. And for heaven's sakes, Canada is probably more vulnerable to global warming than any other industrialized country. We're a northern country. If a temperature rises by 2 degrees in the temperate areas, it's going to rise by 6 to 8 degrees in the Arctic. The Inuit have been telling us for years that the Arctic is changing. We're going to be hammered by what happens in the Arctic. We have the longest marine coastline of any kind of the world. When water gets warmer, it expands. Sea level rise is going to affect Canada more than any other country in the world. Canada still depends on forestry, on fisheries, on uh, uh, agriculture, on tourism. Things that depend on climate. We've got a huge stake in doing something, and if we can't do anything, why the heck should India or China or Brazil or Indonesia?
comes out of a dispenser in the uh, mess hall. Uh, I'll be right back. Oh, uh, do you think you could bring me some food while you're at it? Whatever's left in the serving case. That is, if you haven't already taken everything. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Bob Metz, and we're going to be with you from now till noon, 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to join us in our conversation here, or email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. I was shocked to read in the paper this week that apparently recycling is no longer green. That, according to a couple of the members of the Local Council of Canadians, London chapter, who apparently have weighed in on the debate in an article in the Free Press. And uh, time to challenge convenience. There we go again, folks. And commit to pre-cycling our waste. Uh, in a heading, an article headed by Corey Morningstar and Krista Thawchuk, who, by the way, had her article also printed in the Londoner as a letter to the editor, and uh, both of whose articles are almost the same as everything written uh, by none other than Maud Barlow. You know, I looked at these two articles and I said, you couldn't find two more silly, idiotic arguments. Seldom you would, you would find side-by-side side like this, as if they were both uh, victim members of some cult. And, you know, this cult is run by Maud Barlow, one of the most celebrated and, you know, not a nice person. You know, I, 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 her ideas are evil. Let's face it. I, I regard anyone's ideas as evil if they do not believe in freedom and always prefer force to persuasion. That's what I mean when I talk about something or someone being evil. And I've, I've been watching the, 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 the history of this group ever since I got involved in politics, way back in the late 70s, early 80s. And since then, you know, since, that's when I first became conscious of politics, I've always found myself in direct opposition to uh, almost every single thing that Maud Barlow and the Council of Canadians has ever said. They have a near-perfect record of being wrong on just about everything. They are purely communistic and fascistic, it, from its roots to its leadership. It, they just have this abiding and contemptuous hatred for freedom, enterprise, and capitalism, and, and now they're becoming quite bold-faced about it. They're coming right out and saying it. And they'll say anything, create any fiction, to root out freedom wherever they might find it. And from sex to the environment, I've watched the Council of Canadians consistently promote state control and state ownership as the solution for every problem facing our country. You know, they are our own nationalist socialists, and this is one of the key groups that's actually pulling the bandwagon that most of our city councillors are riding, and, and, and their solution to everything they don't like, you know. Uh, and interesting, the things they don't like are always the virtuous and the good things, and so the, their solution is to ban it. So, I think that'll go a long way towards explaining what you're about to hear. Here's Corey Morningstar. This is out of the free press. And listen to what she has to say on recycling. Maybe you've been putting all some effort into recycling. Well, you're no longer a good person because, quote, recycling is not green. Bottled water contributes to vast amounts of pollution and climate change. The manufacturing of bottled water creates massive amounts of CO2 emissions. Both of these statements are false, by the way, and we went through all of that last week in detail. And then she says, all of this is in the midst of an alarming global water crisis. Yeah, on a planet that's made out of 71% water. In India, water is now a ration necessity that may be taken by force, she says. The bottled water industry is growing at an annual rate of 20%, which is very interesting since another guy I quoted from the Green Movement said it was 
being hurt by the activities of the green movement, which just goes to show how they say anything to paint the picture that they want to paint. Recycled plastic is a small percentage of what is manufactured. Now there's the key. They don't care about recycling. It's manufacturing that they're really after. And she says, quote, the notion that recycling is the answer produces only more illusions. Outrageous levels of production and consumption are at the core of market economies. And unless that process is confronted, little will change. There she goes. She's totally opposed to the process of market economies. Freedom, choice, consent, um, everything that you're taught is a virtue as an individual. And these are the things that they're opposed to. Now listen to this one. Bottled water is a habit. Now it's a habit, see, now they're going to turn you into a drug, druggie. That undermines the safety of tap water. So, you see, you drinking bottled water undermines the safety of tap water. Did you know that? Just doing that. All of a sudden, that'll make the other water unsafe. There's a, some law of physics there, I guess. And, uh, and commodifies a resource that is a public commons. And there, you, there again, they want the public commons of water to be totally run by the state. You know, if you want free public water, then, you know, go out to the lake and help yourself. That's where the free water is. Has she not heard about the tragedy of the commons? That, you know, that's an expression economists use when they refer to extinct species of animals made so by the fact that they were on the commons, and therefore they belonged to everybody, right? And so they were overhunted or overfished because no one had an interest in maintaining the stock, uh, precisely because it belonged to everyone, and that is part of the fiction of public ownership uh, and why things that are owned by the public, i.e. the government, generally turn out to be a disaster. And of course she concludes the true solution is not to produce bottles in the first place. End quote. No, that's not the solution. That is just your true goal. That's what you want to. And it's nice to see them coming out and say it. I, I just spent the last uh, half year trying to explain this and now they're coming out and saying it bluntly. And then there's Krista Sawchuk, a name unfamiliar to me, but Maud Barlow is the real culprit here, of course. But here's what she had to write in both the Londoner and the Free Press. She says, uh, rather than creating waste to be recycled, people should engage in a practice called pre-cycling. Pre-cycling is the practice of reducing waste by attempting to avoid bringing into the home or business items that generate waste. Drinking tap water instead of bottled water is an example of how to engage in the act of pre-cycling. Tap water is a clean, healthy, and safe alternative to bottled water, and it can be accessed without wasteful packaging. I would like to commend London City Council for its decision to ban the purchase and sale of single-use bottled water in all city facilities. Here are some facts that Council considered. And I'm telling you, if these are the facts that Council considered, we should get rid of them tomorrow, because none of these facts are really facts. And <laughs> listen to this. Um, First of all, in both the production and disposal of single-use plastic water bottles, they always say single-use, that's stressed. You know, the other ones, this doesn't happen. Uh, toxic chemicals are released into the air and water. It takes close to 17 million barrels of oil to produce the 30 billion water bottles Americans use annually. Well, that's interesting. We have to worry about what Americans are doing here in London, Ontario. And she says if bottled water did not exist, enough oil would be saved to run 100,000 cars for one year. Now that's, you know, that, that's in the pure BS department, okay? And it, it also belies the fact that cars run on, on gasoline, not on oil, and the processes are completely different, and you can't compare the two. 
Um, bottled water companies obtain their water from rural springs and public systems. They pay very little or sometimes nothing for what they take. Now that's true. Those two sentences are true. We talked about that last week. Yet these same companies charge consumers high prices for their water. Now that, of course, is not true. The, the companies charge exactly 12.5 cents for every bottled water that they sell to the retailer. The rest of the money is marked up by retail, and we went through the details of that last week. Uh, from official business and industry statements that were, by the way, printed long before this was an issue, so they weren't printed to defend anything. Um, although bottled water companies claim their water is cleaner and safer than tap water, a multitude of studies has proven this is not the case. Several have found disturbing concentrations of arsenic and mercury in bottled water samplings. Well, I'd like to see one. Uh, you know, she's talking about several. When you hear how the... Uh, the bottled water industry is treated as a food. They have to list their ingredients. I've never seen arsenic and mercury listed in it. Their water is tested hourly. It, it, it goes through a complete process, and that includes, by the way, just in case you're in doubt, the water that they do take from municipal taps. It goes through the same process that I described last week. So it's not the same product. Uh, then she argues that by selling bottled water, these companies are preparing for the takeover of public water services, i.e. government water services, for profit water service corporations, oh sorry, for profit water service corporations by creating distrust in municipal water systems and by conditioning us to pay for water. See there, it's a complete conspiracy now. The United Nations and many human advocacy organizations, like the Council of Canadians, are urging the international community to recognize the right to water as a fundamental human right. You know, whenever they do that, that's when you've lost your right to whatever it is they declared you had a right to. And she, she of course, has to take a stab at the, quote, right-wing Harper government. She says, under that government, Canada has opposed all attempts to enshrine the right to water. Well, good, because there is no such thing. Now, all of these arguments were reiterated or originated in an August 13th letter to the London City Council by Maud Barlow on behalf of the Council of Canadians. In her letter, she, of course, refers to our, quote, era when the world is dealing with the impacts of climate change and how bottling water requires massive amounts of fossil fuels to manufacture. Doesn't this all sound totally silly in light of what I just read, both in, from Life magazine and from the guy who was once one of the major people trying to push the CO2 thing and who's now recanted. And they always use the word massive amounts, you know, requires massive amounts of fossil fuels. Uh, same term Cory Morningstar used. Anything is massive when you're looking at it in totality. And when you're producing anything for hundreds of millions of people, anything you're doing at that scale is massive. And like Krista Sawchuk, Bar Barlow argues that the city's water quality standards exceed those of the bottled water industry, a completely outright falsehood. I mean, just put it in print, okay, go on record saying it, and that the industry is, quote, gouging consumers for a product readily available from everyone's taps. It's not the same product. They don't sell it to consumers. Never mind that she's got every part of her sentence wrong. At a time of growing water scarcity, wrong again, even here in Canada, the demand for bottled water is not natural. Oh, you know, flushing your toilet's not natural either. You want to go back to nature? That's what you'll be doing. Think about that for a minute. And uh, has been carefully fostered by an industry that works hard to undermine our faith in public water. Oh, yeah? I'll show you who's undermining our faith in public water. Get this. 
This is from the London Free Press. Heading, tests show schools have got the lead out. Drinking water. Thanks to new procedures for flushing lines, officials say it's safe to drink. And that's the August 31st, 2008 London Free Press, Joe Belanger. This year, quote, the board will spend an estimated $265,000 flushing school water systems to ensure that taps and fountains deliver fresh water every day. Board chairperson Peggy Sattler said the cost is high, but unavoidable. The safety of our students is our first priority, and our flushing protocol is working to address the problem so we do have safe, clean water, she said. The daily flushing of water lines to remove the buildup of lead when the lines aren't running began last year after the Free Press reported startling high levels of lead in London's tap water in areas of older housing with lead pipe services. That discovery triggered sweeping new Ontario water safety rules and prompted London managers to change the chemistry in the city's water. Harmful to human health, lead can damage the brain and is especially harmful to young children and fetuses. Experts say the high lead levels come from the lead pipes, servicing homes and buildings as well as from lead in soldered joints. The city's chemistry change resulted in a reduction of lead levels of about 40% to 50%, city officials say. Some of the reduction was attributed to the fact colder water in the fall and winter is less corrosive. I don't know how they can take credit for that. But the city also began adding odium hydroxide, commonly known as lye or caustic soda, to reduce the acidity of water coming in from Lake Huron. Londoners had been drinking tap water more acidic than what's tolerated by U.S. utilities, whose customers have lead pipes. Is this hilarious or what? Uh, It's just unbelievable. And and that's just the lead issue, never mind all the, the fluoridation and the chlorine and all the rest of it. You know, it's, just, it's like that, that funny quote we played a couple of weeks ago where the guy says, uh, uh, you know, New York City water is, f- is full of chemicals and that's why it's safe to drink. It's absolutely true. Precycling is, you know, one of those words, too, that's just meaningless. To use the analogy used by, you know, Isabel Patterson, she said it's rather like talking about the roundness of a triangle. A cycle, I looked it up, you know, a cycle is a series of periodically recurring events or the time intervals between regularly cur- recurrent phenomenon. There are cycles of changes in the refrigerant of an electric refrigerator and the explosive mixture mixture in a gas engine, that kind of thing. And uh, so, you know, there's all these kinds of cycles. You've got the moon cycle and all that stuff. Now, try applying the word pre-cycle to any of those concepts, and you can see how silly it is and how purposely misleading to use such a word is. They don't want pre-cycling. They want no production, no, uh, no cycling at all. So, uh, you know, something else that works in cycles is the household uh, washer and dryer and the electricity that powers them. And, you know, Dalton McGinty has been working to move forward with his ban to, cl- to ban clothesline bans as if everyone was rushing out to hang their laundry on, cl- on laundry lines. I discussed the implications of this on a past show in quite a bit of detail. And uh, don't, re- don't intend to repeat that, but I guess you could call that pre-cycling too. Just another indication of the desperately and utterly symbolic measures our government is resorting to trying to keep out of our sight the government-sponsored electric power shortage that's being suffered in Ontario. For all our nuclear reactors and technology flowing rivers and streams, Ontario still has to import power to meet its demands. You know, we're on the precipice of an age of power rationing and a sure sign that socialism has run its course and is now entering its next stage. And another thing that runs in cycles, of course, are politicians. I think we should pre-cycle them for a change. Uh, They're about as inconvenient as you can get. Because when someone's goal is to break down the workings of the free market and private business, 
you have to expect meaningless, mindless, contradictory terms to be used. Now, when we return after this break, I'll be making my case for why I think that convenience is not a luxury, but a necessity. But first, let's listen in on Dr. Walter Williams speaking to a United States audience about uh, big government versus big business, which is pretty well what the Green Movement wants to put in place of big business. Back after these breaks and some messages. Now, there's a lot of nonsense that goes on in the media and on our college campuses where people make the argument that we need big government to offset the big power, the power of big business. Well, it's nonsense. Despite the bigness and the alleged power, I say alleged power, of industrial giants like IBM, AT&T, General Motors, Exxon, Chrysler, what kind of power do they have over you and I in a free market? They have none. That is, in order for Exxon to get one dollar out of me, what must happen? Well, I must voluntarily get in my car, voluntarily drive down the street, voluntarily drive up in this man's lot, and voluntarily hand him a dollar for a gallon of gasoline. He has no power over me. I do everything voluntarily. That does not describe my relationship with my government. Now, so in a free market, the only way they can get things, big business can get things from us or any business, is voluntarily. Now, lest I be remiss in my responsibilities, they can get dollars from us whether we want to give it to them or not. But what must they do? They must go to Washington, D.C. first to get permission. They must get permission from the United States Congress to rip us off. For example, take Lee Iacocca. You know, he was having trouble with his company back during the 70s. Or, or take the farmers. Many of the farmers, having, uh, they're having trouble. Well, the farmers, they know where I live. I live in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. And the farmers, they can come and knock on my door and say, buddy, I'm having trouble. Can you spare a dime? Now, I'd probably tell the farmers to go play in the traffic. <laughs> now, the farmers know that. And other big businesses, they, they know that. So what, they, what the farmers will do, they will go to Senator Dole. And they'll say to Senator Dole, if we ask Williams to voluntarily help us out, He's going to tell us to go play in the traffic. So could you use your agents to take his money? <laughs> That's how big business can get dollars from us, whether we want to give it or not. They have to get permission from congressmen and, and uh, state uh, legislators. all this? The laundry. I can't hang it outside today. It looks like rain. Well, can you hang it someplace else besides the kitchen? Well, there's always the living room or the front hall. Well, I guess it is a problem. I'll say it is. It's an awful problem. But it's one that you could solve if you just say the word. What word? Automatic dryer. That's two words, and I'd like to add one more. <laughs> what would you like to add? No. Oh, now, Ricky, if I had a dryer, this wouldn't happen every time it rains. And there's a lot of rain ahead. I read about it just the other day in the almanac. 
Look, honey, the answer is no. Oh. Dryers are too expensive. They are not expensive. <laughs> not considering all the back-breaking work they save. I know, honey, I know. You don't know. Up and down those stairs, carrying this heavy basket. Up and down, up and down. My muscles straining, body all aching and racked with pain. Hold those shirts, lift those sheets. Up. All right. Now look, old man river, will you dry up? <laughs> Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW. Uh, not much time left in the show. I've got a couple of subjects I'm trying to get in quickly, and one of them is why I think that necess- or ve- uh, convenience is actually a necessity and has a tremendous value to all of us. And it's not always to be found directly in the convenience itself. You might look at that and say, well, that's it. But, you know, I think it's a simple thing to understand for most common sense people that the time saved by going to, say, a fast food outlet will invariably be spent at something that is of greater value to the person paying for the convenience. And whether that time saved is spent in further luxury or comfort, or whether it's spent on caring for a dying patient in a hospital, or cutting the lawn, or simply having a nap, having the choice and ability, the time, to do that is always better than not having the choice and being forced to spend more time on the things that we value less. So, you know, the one- and two-dimensional way in which the whole green movement views this issue leads to a sort of arrested development in the clear understanding of economics. Remember, convenience is good. Inconvenience is bad. Convenience is an essential component of a healthy economy and a healthy society. And if you're talking about health terms, inconvenience is like a blockage of the arteries, whereas convenience is a healthy heart and circulation system. And the reason for this is this. Time is our eternal enemy, and that clock is always ticking. Everything we do is measured against time. The wages you earn, the profits you make, the losses you incur even, the life you live, the history we study, the speed of our cars, the speed of our computers, the speed of light itself, which many argue is the speed of time, measured against distance, of course. A light year is a measurement of distance, remember, not of time. But each day, like it or not, brings us one day closer to our demise, which is why I always wonder why we celebrate our birthdays instead of get depressed. But what can you do? So if you want to get more time out of your life, you have to compress it. And if something normally takes you one hour to do, and you can now do it in 15 minutes, you have, in effect, compressed the time it takes to to accomplish whatever the task was. The significance of this, though, understand this, is not the 15 convenient minutes spent versus the 60 inconvenient minutes spent, but the 45 minutes of extra time you've earned to do something else. That's your profit, right there. And in order to compress time, here's where the whole green movement comes in, we need energy. In physics, time is compressed as an object approaches the speed of light. Uh, relative to objects traveling at far lesser speed. But the closer you get to the speed of light, the greater the amount of energy required to sustain that speed. So great, in fact, there are those who argue that the energy required becomes so exponentially great that it approaches something resembling infinity and could never be accomplished. But as they say, I don't know the answer on this, but time will tell, haha. Now, now, let's apply this same principle to our daily lives. Say you want to visit someone or conduct some business in Toronto next week. You live in London. Now, you could walk at a very brisk pace, uninterrupted for meals, sleeping, and other bodily functions at 10 kilometers an hour. Say, something again, measured against time, you could reach Toronto in 20 hours. 
roughly using 200 kilometers as the base amount. So in reality, of course, <laughs> you could never keep such a pace up for an uninterrupted period of time like that. Uh, not only would you get physically tired and exhausted, and never mind if you had to actually carry anything, the problems of such a trip would become obvious pretty soon. And what if you weren't traveling alone? So in reality, in a state of nature, a walking trip from London to Toronto might take as long as three days to two weeks, depending on how hard you can drive yourself. Or you could avoid all of that inconvenience and compress that time and save your personal bodily energy by using the energy that we can harness from nature, hop in a car and make the trip in approximately two hours. Again, the issue is not the convenience of the two-hour trip. It's the time saved to do and accomplish and enjoy your life doing the activities you want. You know, you just saved yourself four weeks of messing around with, with having a car, making that trip. And you can use your time, be a producer, be a consumer. And that extra time, which would never have been available to you in a state of nature, is the third dimension of the issue, which environmentals cannot mentally grasp. And, of course, the fourth dimension is time itself. So to suggest that convenience is not a necessity, that we should abandon convenience, uh, you know, and the benefits of it affords us, I think is like counseling suicide to an otherwise healthy person. It's kind of criminal. Uh, business and producers are always concerned with doing things economically, and what that means is doing the most with the least. It's being economical, the greatest output being achieved with the least amount of energy and waste. To be uneconomical is to waste. So, you know, reduce, reuse, and recycle has been an unspoken slogan of most business and industry since the very beginning. And profit is a measurement of economy, and yet the green movement is opposed to profits and productions. There goes another contradiction. And that's just one of the reasons I think the green movement's in reality a profound enemy of the environment. The things they think are saving and helping the environment are doing the opposite. So I'll say it again. Convenience is a necessity. Unfortunately, uh, if the green movement ever finds that out, necessity won't be allowed anymore as a reason to produce. That's all i got to say on that. We'll come back after this and discuss very briefly some mock thoughts I have on the whole London Hydro sale deal. We'll be right after this. Gee, it's taken this wash a long time to dry. This is my third batch. Oh, you poor little thing. Baby, sure make a lot of laundry. I'll say. I've been trying to talk Ricky into buying me an automatic dryer, but he says they're too expensive. <laughs> I'm surprised he doesn't want me to get down to the river and beat the clothes clean on a stone. <laughs> something in the paper the other day. I read that in the state of Louisiana, they had just passed a law that if someone touches a handle to the car of your door, you can shoot them. <laughs> now, don't you wish they'd pass similar leg legislature here? Wouldn't it be great if our politicians passed into law that if anybody comes near your windshield at an intersection, you can blow the bastards away? <laughs> huh? I'm so tired of these squeegee people leaping out of nowhere like Apaches attacking the wagon train, okay? They come running up swinging a squeegee like a tomahawk. Can I clean your windshield? I'm like, you can't even clean your clothes. Get the hell away from my car! <laughs> well, I 
just trying to make a dollar. Yeah, so am I. You're making me late for work. Get the hell away from my car. Look, man, I'm sorry you're unemployed. Take your squeegee, wash your armpits and your bum. Maybe some guy will hire you at a donut shop, okay? But see, the reason I bought this car is it had this really cool button, and when I press this button, liquid blue stuff comes on the windshield, and these two rubber arms that don't have tattoos come back and forth and make it clean. I don't have to put a loony in the ashtray. Sorry, but Henry Ford made your job career selection obsolete 75 years ago. So get the hell away from my car. <laughs> well, you never know what City Hall will do next. Uh, London Hydro's future in the hands of taxpayers reads the Free Press article by Chip Martin on August 29th, and he tells us there that we own an asset worth nearly a quarter billion dollars, so what do we want to do with it, asks the article. Now, I did some quick math, and if London Hydro is worth a quarter billion, 250 million, and if you took the roughly 300,000 or so permanent inhabitants, i.e. voters of the city, and divided that up, each person would get $833.33. And, uh, but if you only took into account the registered property tax owners, if, if they were counted, that amount would be much higher. And, of course, just as fictional and just as unreal. Uh, you know, they have four things they want to do. They don't really know what they want to do. They're either going to sell the city or sell the, sell the uh, utility, uh, do nothing, um, merge it with other utilities, and according to my uh, London Hydro insert, uh, perhaps consider acquisition, purchasing equity interest in another utility. You can go and visit uh, www.londonhydro.com to view some of London Hydro's documents and reports on this. But here's what I want to make clear, and I've talked about this briefly in the past, but as Londoners, we are neither owners nor voters with regard to the sale of London Hydro. If you want to, you can go and attend a public bull session and give your two cents worth to the public consultation process at a public meeting to be held uh, two weeks today, in fact, September 18th. But two cents is about all your opinion will be worth to the process, and that's exactly what you see on the front page of the London Hydro brochure promoting the meeting. Quote, here's my two cents. I'll tell you what I think, in my opinion, end quote. You know, blah, blah, blah. Thanks for coming out. But not, not only do you not even own a piece of London Hydro because the Corporation of the City of London explicitly owns it, but you don't even get to vote on the issue unless we hear about some kind of binding rep referendum on the subject, and I wouldn't be holding my breath waiting for that. And I don't think that the city will really want to risk its asset by placing it in the hands of voters, uh, unless, of course, they're trying to uh, wash themselves of any responsibility in what decision is to be made. And, um, you know, if you actually believe you own a piece of London Hydro, uh, check your stock certificate and see how much it's worth. Have you got one there? Can you pull it out? I don't think you have one, do you? You don't own it any more than you own the street or that you own the surplus in government budgets that they always tell you about. Um, you know, changing ownership in a company whose assets are firmly nailed to the ground, which is the infrastructure delivering our water and power, is not particularly a reason to fear that we won't have reliable or affordable service under a new owner ownership. And I've said this before. Ideally, you know, the opposite, opposite should be true. But whoever owns it would want to provide a service at a profit, just like the current owners do. And whether that means higher or lower prices for consumers depends not on ownership per se, but upon the competitive market forces uh, that we would be going into, leading to increased production. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like we're going in that direction. 
uh, because one of the impetuses behind this is the McGinty government trying to reduce the number of power companies in business and create even fewer in the business. And that's that's not going to be good for the consumer. I can't see any of the options we're being asked to consider to be viable when the whole environment in which it's in is flawed from the, from the beginning. Because when you increase the supply of something relative to demand, prices will fall. That's the, that's the necessary thing. And whenever you restrict production, artificially raise prices or ration anything, you know, prices will rise regardless of ownership. And there's only two kinds of ownership, individual or government. And you could name either one of them, public or private. And whether a particular property is private or public depends on the will of its owner. And if the door is locked when you arrive, then you're probably not going to get in. You know, Ayn Rand reminds us that bear in mind that the right to property is a right to action like all the others. It's not a right to an object, but to the action and consequences of producing or earning that object. It is not a guarantee that anyone will keep any property, but only a guarantee that he'll own it if he earns it. It's the right to gain, to keep, to use, and to dispose of material values. And of course, none of those things apply to us as citizens with regard to uh, London Hydro. You're a two-center when it comes to London Hydro, and that's probably all our shares are worth. That's it for me this week, folks. So I hope you can join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, act right, do right, stay right, and think right. Take care. We'll see you then. Into black and white under the bedclothes every day on the I think Pringles initial intention was to make tennis balls. <laughs> but on the day that the rubber was supposed to show up, a big truckload of potatoes arrived. <laughs> and Pringles said, what the hell? Cut them up. <laughs> and Pringles said, what the hell? Cut him up. <laughs>